Father, we give you thanks and praise for the joy that we can have together this morning. I thank you that you have brought us from, from many places to come and to share in the word together. Uh, we pray that in this time that you would tune our hearts and our ears to hear what you have to say through your servants. Pray for our dear brother and pastor, Ed, who is about to minister to us from your word. Uh, we pray that your spirit would bring forth all of his fruits in us and in him as we partake together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us through Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Please take a look at this. Pastors, rule number one, never, under circumstances, ever, start off a sermon with a movie clip. <laughs> Announcements. It's not easy in the local church to find someone who can do announcements well on Sunday mornings in a worship service. You know, we had a young man here at North Shore Baptist Church who was our youth director. His name is Jackson Hewer. Uh, he was our director of youth and children's ministries, and he did announcements for us here at North Shore Baptist Church, and he did them very well. Well, about seven months ago, he left our church in New York City and moved to Georgia, where he is currently working for my son, Parker Moore, at his church. Cleveland Road Baptist Church in Athens, Georgia. And one Sunday, I decided to watch a live stream of their service at Cleveland Road Baptist Church, and Jackson was doing the announcements. What do you think of that? I have a friend named Brian Payne. Uh, he's a pastor in Auburn, Alabama. If he were to walk in the room right now, the best that you could hope for would to be the second best preacher in the room. Uh, he is that good. He's the pastor of Lakeview Baptist Church. He's a world-class preacher. He taught my son, Charlie Homiletics, at Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky. He used to be a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky at Fisherville Baptist Church. Well, back in 2016, I was visiting my daughter Savannah in Louisville one weekend, and she was his pastor, and the Payne family allowed me to stay at their house, and on the morning of November 6, 2016, I went to his church, and I rode with him in his car to church that morning. What do you think of that? Turn your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 20. Listen as I read verses 20 through 28. Matthew 20, 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that is to Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that, my two, that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. In your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And 
they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten, that is the ten other disciples other than James and John, when the ten heard it, they were indignant, angry at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him. He, he, he has a, a team meeting here, and he says, you know, you know, you know already, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be First among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, my topic for you today is the pastor as a servant. Now, my time is limited today, and there are several words and phrases in this text which I'm not going to address. Uh, my main reason for not addressing them is because I don't know what they mean. Um, uh, the, the mother of James and John speaks to Jesus about his kingdom. I, I, I have to confess, I, I, I'm not sure I know what the kingdom of God is. It's a, it's a confusing concept for me. When I see the word kingdom in Scripture, my little mind can't give it a simple definition. Um, you've seen the meme, I'm sure, that says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming after a 2,000-year parenthetical period known as the dispensation of grace. After that, there is a tribulation period of seven years, and then there's a huge battle, end meme, and well said. But even if I'm not able today to come up with a tight definition of kingdom of God, which, by the way, is not a good thing after 39 years in the ministry, but it is what it is, I want to submit to you that there is something far worse than that, and that is not knowing how the kingdom of God operates. Let's just say for the sake of argument that James and John and Mrs. Zebedee knew exactly what the kingdom was. And let's just say that they could give it a tight definition. Please know that that accurate definition did not help them in advancing the kingdom of God. Because clearly they misunderstood how the kingdom of God operates as evidenced by the fact that they jockeyed for position to get to the top through conventional, worldly, carnal, Gentile means. Think of it this way. I own a car, but I cannot explain to you how that car operates. I do not know the complexities of an engine. Now, this is why when I go to get my car fixed, I am always cheated, and so are you. It's because we simply don't know. They say something, we pay the money, that's the end of it. However, I do know how to operate a car in a way that is useful and helpful. So follow the analogy. I am in the kingdom. Now, I have no idea how all of the inner workings of the already but not yet work together to define the kingdom in this age and in the age to come. However, I know exactly what life in the kingdom looks like. I do know how to operate a car. I do know how the kingdom of God operates. And in part, the reason I know how the kingdom of God operates is because James and John and their mother and the other ten disciples, who, by the way, were no different than James and John, evidenced by the fact that they were indignant, these twelve disciples and this woman, they are the ones who have taught me how the kingdom of God operates through their sinful self-desire for promotion. You see, this narrative helps us understand how we are to think and how we are to behave in the kingdom of God, even if we can't define precisely what it is. 
This passage tells us how to drive the car. Because Jesus uses this occasion to pull them together and teach them what kingdom living looks like. And he starts off with what they do, D-O, what they do already understand. Uh, Look in verse 25. You know, you know, this is something you know already, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, the Jews who were living in the Roman Empire in the first century knew how the Romans did not mess around. And so you know already that they get into their positions of power and then they use that power to dominate those who are below them. Bartholomew, Andrew, James, Judas, you you see it every day. Your life is impacted by their dominance. That's the way the world works. And you know that it does work. You know that already. Poor man want to be rich. Rich man want to be king. And king ain't satisfied until he rules everything. Bruce Springsteen, 1978, Badlands. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so did the 12 disciples. Because not one of them asked for clarification. Not one of them disagreed and said, Oh, Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. Caesar isn't like that. Pilate, he's a very reasonable gentleman. No, they understood that is the way of the world. That is the way that the world works. And sadly, we... Dear pastors, sometimes are that way too. And we bring our get-to-the-top mentality into the ministry. And so if you take what is in our hearts, that is the pride that is in our hearts, and the influence of the devil, and the system of this world... And they all work in concert to shape us into rulers who are inclined to do ministry looking more like Caesar than we do like Jesus. And so Jesus starts off with what they do know. And then he turns it upside down. And he says in verse 26, it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. In other words, what you need to do is you need to reorientate your priorities from the way that you have been trained to think. You want greatness in the kingdom. There's nothing wrong with that. I I, I am not saying that that is bad at all. In fact, I am indeed saying that that is a good thing. But just know this, Jesus said, the way that you get to greatness in the kingdom is to claw your way to the bottom of the pile and to make yourself the least important person in the room. You see, in the world, and sadly in many churches, the great one is the one who tells everybody else what to do. The great one is the one, and I kid you not, there are some churches like this, who have parking lots where the pastor has his own parking space. And it says, pastor only. Uh, He is the one that is feared. He is the one that is never challenged or rebuked. Uh, He is the one that gets the special treatment. Uh, He is the one uh, that is always put at the front of the line, both figuratively and literally. And Jesus says, you need to turn this thing upside down. The great one is the servant. Diaconus, which, by the way, is the correct mispronunciation of that word. (laughs) This morning as I was going over my notes, side note, this won't help you in your sanctification at all, but true story. This morning as I was going over my notes, my son, who has taken Greek more recently than me, I said, Charlie, D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S. And he says, what's, what's that? I said, well, I just need the pronunciation, servant. And Rowan is there, and he says, servant. 
<laughs> Diakonus, the, the, the great one is the servant. And then he intensifies that in verse 27, and he says, whoever would be the first among you must be your doulos, must be your slave, your bondservant. You see what Jesus did here? He says, in the kingdom there is greatness, and greatness comes by being a servant. But if you want to be the top dog, you want to be great? You want to be great? You got to be the servant. But if you want to be the top dog, the GOAT, G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time, if you want to be the GOAT, you've got to get even lower. You have to be the slave. You know what GOAT is, right? The greatest of all time. Uh, in basketball, Michael Jordan would be considered the GOAT, indisputably the greatest of all time. Uh, hockey would be Wayne Gretzky. I don't think you'd get any argument. Uh, in acting, John Travolta. Uh, I think you, 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 indisputable. In the kingdom, if you want to be the goat, and that's not a bad goal, it's not enough to be the servant. You have to limbo lower. You have to get to the bottom. And you have to assume the position of a slave or a bondservant in order to be the greatest of all time. You have to be the least important person in the room. And the lower you get, the greater you are. It's turned completely upside down. Now, I'm guessing at this point that nobody is arguing with me or, or nobody is disagreeing with me right now except maybe the pastors who have their own parking space, but another sermon for another day. But the concept of humble servant, put others first ministry, although it is commendable, I would say it is seldom seen and seldom lived out for a number of reasons. I have an MDiv, and in three years of seminary, they taught me a little bit about Greek, they didn't teach me a thing or say a thing about getting to the bottom. I don't think it is expected of pastors. I don't think pastors are trained to think this way. In fact, from what I have seen from much of the pastoral training that's out there, I think the exact opposite is true, that they, they teach you how to get to the top. Uh, there is no rebuke or no penalty if you don't move in the direction of the bottom. In fact, there is, as I said, a lot of encouragement and training which equips pastors to climb the ladder. Answer this within your own heart. How much training have you practically received on how to be the servant of all? See, the way Jesus describes greatness in the kingdom, it is a beautiful idea and a beautiful ideal, and it is theoretically something that everyone wants to talk about. Kind of like weight loss, exercise, great. I am all for it. I'm not going to do anything about it. Practically, be honest, how vigorously are you trying to obtain the bottom position? Or if I can ask it in another way, if I today were to interview your wife and your children and your staff and your fellow elders and deacons and church members and anybody that knows you in the ministry, and if they were to be interviewed and they were to be asked, can you please cite some specific examples how your pastor is striving to claw his way to the bottom, to be known as the servant of all, what would they say? And hopefully there would be some examples and they would have some answers. And praise God for that, because that is the grace of God in your life. However, what I would like to do in the time that remains is I would like to give you some additional things to think about, and working off of the assumption that you would be interested in some practical suggestions as how you might move more and more in the direction of the bottom. 
And so what I'm about to give you is not an exhaustive list. In fact, I'm confident it's not even the best list. It just happens to be my list. I found it to be helpful. And furthermore, I would not expect you to attempt to apply all of these suggestions. I think it would be a grand and glorious uh, success if you would just take one of these things and consider them. Here they are in no particular order except for the fact that the last one is the most important one. I have six of them. Number one, give away as much as you can to other local like-minded churches. Give away as much as you possibly can give away to other like-minded local churches. This is not a competition to see who can have the biggest church. Your church is not your church. Your church is not the kingdom of God. Do not be territorial. This is a high school musical. We're all in this together. (laughs) If you have been blessed by an abundance of resources, I ask you the question, What do you have that you did not receive? Freely you have received, freely give. If you have more than you need, then remember what John the Baptist said in Luke 3, 8. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So give of your resources to other local like-minded churches. Now, when you do this, will your church be weakened by giving money or preachers for pulpit supply or song leaders or even members to other struggling local churches? Absolutely. You will be weakened because when you give, by definition, you will have less than you currently have. But my suggestion to you today is that you intentionally reach out to like-minded local pastors and ask them, how might we serve you? So my son Parker is a pastor in Athens, Georgia, as I said earlier. Um, When he first got to the church early in 2020, uh, there were nine members. When he took the job, there were 10 members. One of them died Then he took the job, got there, there were only nine members, and eight of the nine were what you would consider to be senior adults. There was one young man, and the rest of the people were a good bit older. When he had been there for one solid year, one solid year, at the end of December, the last sermon of December in 2020, December 27th, I preached at his church. And other than his family and my wife and my daughter, there were, get it, seven people in the church that were his congregation. Seven people at the end of a year's work. Most Sundays, I would say to Parker, tell me about your service. He would talk about the sermon. He would talk about the songs. And I would say, And who led the singing today? Parker would say, I led the singing, right? And what music did you have? And he would say, a cappella. There's nobody there that knows how to play an instrument. On the Sunday that I preached there, there was a lady who was a member of another church who came that morning to play the piano. And I cannot tell you the blessing it was to the dozen people in the room to have someone from another church come and simply play the piano. What a tremendous blessing. Now, the Lord has blessed his church uh, over the past couple of years. Now they have people who can play instruments and lead the singing, and, 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 and that, is, that is good now. But there was a day when it was very precious for them just to have one piano player. If you have two piano players, can you give to the one who has none? Number two, associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. I'm talking about you personally. 
Uh, here's a direct quote from Romans 12, 16. In the King James Version, it says, condescend to men of low estate. Uh, the New King James says, associate with the humble. Uh, the New Living Translation says, don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. You know what this is called? Good, normal chatting. Good, normal chatting. And that clip I played before, the older man says, I, I, I'm wasting my life. I, I, I'm going to get to the end of my life, and all I'm going to have at the end of my life is just this boring chatting. And the other gentleman says, no, no, not boring chatting, just good normal chatting. So here we are as pastors, and our time is very valuable, and we are the ones that the other people in the church are looking to. People want to talk to us. I don't know why that baffles me, but they do. They want to have a conversation with their pastor, and we somehow feel that what we have to say and who we are is so important, and so if there is someone that is interesting or, or, or someone that is a good conversationalist, then by all means, we are going to extend ourselves and, and, and have that conversation and have them over to eat, and they will be our friends. But what about the person, the sheep that God has given you, who all they can do is boring chatting? How easy it is for us to dismiss this person and to spend ourselves on the people whom we perceive to be more important and more interesting. I once heard a pastor say, and there was a professional athlete that had come to their church one day, and he said, you know, I'm targeting that guy. I've got them on my list. I'm going to try to get them into our church, which Christ died for professional athletes. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not wishing damnation upon professional athletes. But I, I do want to remind you of what James says, that if a rich guy shows up at your church and you show special attention, and at the same time you extend <clears throat> an inferior welcome to a poor man, James says, you are judges with evil thoughts. Several years ago, I was here on a late Wednesday afternoon. We have, a, we have a Wednesday service during the summer. We eat a meal, and then we have a service. It, it's, it's a big deal. We, we enjoy this. Late afternoon on a Wednesday, I'm in my office. Uh, uh, a couple walks in. I did not know that they were celebrities. I didn't know who they were, but they were celebrities. And so you know, how did you hear about our church? And they told us how they heard. And they said, well, where, where are you staying? And they said, Manhattan. I said, how did you get here? They said, oh, we took a cab. And I'm thinking, well, wow, you could have taken the train and saved a lot of money. <laughs> <clears throat> so I have no idea who they are. And I, I, I leave. I said, I'm sorry, I have to go home for a few minutes, but I'll be back. The meal starts at 6 o'clock, but make yourself at home. I, I don't know who they are. And I walked onto the back patio of our church, and it is a buzz. Everyone keeps walking up to me saying, do you know who's here? This couple's here. Do you know who they are? Do you know? I, say, I don't have any idea. And they tell me who they are. And the people of our church were, were just hovering over them, and they were, they were drooling over them. As providence would have it, there was a guy that showed up that night. First and last time he's ever been to our church, who had a bald head and a tattoo on the top of his head. I, I'm sure he was, a, he might have been a florist, I don't know. But, but he, looked, he looked gruesome. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was a, a, a really uh, tattoo on his head. And, 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 and he, he just looked rough. And brothers and sisters, I, I will tell you, that as I watched our church hover over the people that were so, so famous, there was one person 
in the church, and that was you, Keith Allen, who walked over and talked to the man with the tattoo on his head. And at that point, I thought to myself, you, Edmore, are a bad pastor in that you have not trained your people about the sinfulness of partiality. You see, by nature, we size up visitors and we assess uh, what kind of members they will be. Well, I, I, I like them. That they look good. They're going to be a good addition to our church. When what we need to be doing is we need to be remembering what Jesus said in Luke 14, when he said, when you give a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Verse 13 When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Now, Jesus is not saying that it is wrong for you to have friends who are your social and intellectual equivalents. But be honest. How much effort are you putting into boring or normal chatting? How much effort are you putting into the people in your church who are slower or weaker or weirder or just boring, boring chatting? Is there an intentional effort on your part to love and to spend time with people who are plain and humble, simple folk? And if you say, well, we don't have any people in our church who are plain, simple, humble folk, then I want to tell you, you have bigger problems than I can address in this sermon. A church without weak people is a weak church. Remember who you are. You are a hell-deserving sinner, and you have been called into the ministry. You are a servant, and you are to strive to remember constantly that you are the least important person in the room. And so extend yourself to the lowly. There are two ways that you can do this. Number one, show hospitality without grumbling and have the people of your church into your home indiscriminately. For some reason, people think it is a big deal to come into the pastor's house. And when they are not invited, when they are never invited, they know that they are not invited. They understand that they are not regularly a part of the reindeer games. And so, one way that you can do this is by having the people of your church into your home. 1 Timothy 3.3, an overseer must be hospitable. Another one, and this is really practical, At the end of the service, 1950 style, stand at the door as the people are leaving and to the best of your ability, make an attempt to have eye contact with and greet every person as they pass by. If someone needs to stop you to talk about something and it takes more time, then you set up an appointment with that person and you do it later in the week. But do what you can to try to touch base with every person in your church. Number three, intentionally strive to minister to the children in your church. Children are hearing a lot of harmful voices in the world. They need to know the truth of God from the word of God. The best person that can tell them that is their pastor. And they're going to be much more inclined to listen to you if they know that you love them. And they will know that you love them if you spend time with them. And so for the past 20 years, my favorite hour of the week has been Tuesdays at 4 o'clock. From 4 to 5.30 in this office right over here, we have Pastor Ed's after school class. Usually we'll get about 15 or 20 kids Here's what we will do for them. I will give them unhealthy snacks, which I handle with my hand and put in front of them on my desk. (laughs) They will drink party water, which is just water, but we tell them that it is party water, and I tell them 
be careful, boys and girls, because I put gasoline in two of the cups, so make sure you don't get one with gasoline in it. We'll play some form of violent dodgeball. I will teach them vocabulary words, and then we will give them a text of scripture, usually about 15 or 20 verses. We're making our way through the book of Matthew. We will teach that to them. We will have a quiz on that information, and then we will turn the paper over and violate the second commandment by coloring pictures of Jesus, and then we go home. That's, that's, the, that's the after-school kids class. Now, I do it primarily because I enjoy it, but I also do it because I want them to know that I love them, and I want them to listen to me now, and I want them to listen to me when they grow up. I can remember as a boy, my pastor would frequently come to our house and visit, and I, as an unconverted child, can still remember how he would ask me, Eddie, how are you doing with Jesus? I, I, I was uncomfortable, and I should have been uncomfortable because I was an enemy of God. But here's one thing I knew. I knew that my pastor cared about my soul. It's 50 years later, and I have not forgotten the love of my pastor for me. Pastors, do you have any relationship with the young people in your church? It's all well and good for you to hire a director of youth or children's ministries. I'm not opposed to that. But the children also could be greatly helped by your care for their souls. Number four, and closely related, intentionally strive to minister to the senior adults in your church. So Brian Payne, you remember Brian Payne, the pastor who used to live in Louisville, Kentucky? On Sunday, November 6, 2016, I rode with him to church. He gave me a ride to his church that morning. Now, please keep in mind, he is a world-class preacher, homiletics professor. And on the way to church... We stopped to pick up Lucille Edlin, a widow in his church who was in her 90s. Brothers and sisters, for seven years, Brian Payne picked up this widow on his way to church every Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning. Could a deacon have done that? Absolutely. but he considered it an honor to pick her up. He may be among the best preachers in America, but I'm going to tell you that is not the main reason that he has my highest respect. He has my highest respect because he knows that religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, James 1.27. I am no Brian Payne in my preaching, and I am no Brian Payne in my pastoring. But one thing that I do enjoy doing is teaching a senior adult Bible study. I do it because I am one of them. I enjoy being with them. And so every other week, we have a senior adult Bible study. For those 60 and above, we call it the near-death experience. And if you say, no, I can't do that because there's so much preparation, there's so much study that I have to do. Guys, here, a little trade secret. Just take one of your old sermons or Bible studies and teach it, even if it was a year ago, because they're not going to remember what you said. <laughs> Number five. Intentionally model humility for the next generation. Intentionally strive to model humility for the next generation. You should strive to be a humble leader because that is what Christ is calling you to do and that's what Christ has commanded you to do and because Christ himself is a humble leader. But there's another reason why you should strive to be a humble leader is, is because the next generation is going to be like you. They're going to follow your example. 
And so if you are a top-down, uh, prima donna boss uh, with people serving you right and left, what's going to happen with your apprentice or your assistant pastor or your intern, what they're going to do is they're going to say, well, this is what the pastorate looks like. And so I just can't wait to be king. Like right now, okay, he's the top dog, but the day is coming when I get to be a pastor. And what does it look like to be a pastor? Well, when I get to be a pastor, then people are going to be serving me. My boy was just like me. My boy was just like me. Harry Chapin, 1974. What they need to do is to read the words of Jesus who said, it shall not be so among you, but the great one is to be your servant. But they also need to be looking at you and saying, what it means to be a pastor is to be a servant. See, these words are, are, are very noble and they're, and they're very theoretical ideals, ideals. But they are never going to be lived out when you're in a casket unless you in the now are training them to be servants. Your apprentice is going to be like you, and that is frightening. Luke 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. The next generation won't even know that they are doing it, but they will be like you. I have discovered... Another trade secret here. I have discovered a very crafty, and, 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 and I would like to give myself praise right now and forfeit my reward in heaven and say that this is a genius trick that I have come up with to manipulate my congregation in motivating them to bring food to a potluck dinner, and it goes something like this. I stand in front of the church on Sunday morning, and I say, we're having church night tonight. It's a potluck dinner. And I want to tell you people something, we're going to eat what you bring. Inflicting a, a duty and guilt upon them and, and among those who don't even want to come, they're going to be there because they feel this heavy weight of responsibility. If there isn't enough to eat tonight, it's going to be your fault. So here's what's going to happen. We will eat what you bring. That simple phrase, we will eat what you bring. And the result is that we always have way too much food, and that's better than not having enough food. So I'm watching this live stream of Cleveland Road Baptist Church where Jackson Ewer, you remember Jackson Ewer, he used to be the person that was the youth director here, and he did our announcements, and he did our announcements very well. But seven months ago, he left, and he went to Athens, Georgia, to work for my son, Parker, and I'm watching the live stream of that Sunday, and Jackson gets up to give the announcements, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, tonight, after the evening service, we're going to have a potluck supper. And I'm listening, and he utters those magic words. And we will eat what you bring. And my heart exploded. I was giving myself high fives all over the room. Yes! Because you see, I never told him in staff meeting. Use that phrase. He just heard it over and over. And then I thought, oh no. What else has he picked up from me? The pull my finger trick in the nursing home. It's like, I, I, uh. See, the next generation of pastors are going to be not what you tell them to be. They are going to be what you are. And so for the sake of the church and for the sake of the kingdom, 40 years from now, when you are in a casket, you, are needing, you need to strive in the now, in the now, with your interns and your assistants and your disciples to be humble and to put yourself last. We talk about shepherding the flock that is among us, and we, and we talk about uh, spreading the gospel, and we, and, we, and we talk about homiletics, and we talk about church planting, and we talk about reproducing ourselves, and amen, amen, amen. We must do these things. 
But the question is, in the advance of the gospel and in our church planting, what are we sending out? And who are we sending out? We must reproduce ourselves, and as we reproduce ourselves, we need to make sure that we are humble servant leaders. And here's the thing, guys. I've done a lot of research on this. We are filled with helium. I am filled with helium. It is my tendency by nature to climb to the top and to get the top spot. And again, as I said at the beginning of the service, nobody in your church is going to challenge that kind of ambition. Your fellow ministers are not going to monitor your pride. Your wife might see it and she might say something, but then again, she might not. In fact, you might have a wife that actually enjoys you being at the top spot. And worse yet, you yourself may not be bothered by your quest for a throne and a scepter. Men, unless by the Spirit of God you resolve to get low and you take practical steps to go low, you will not go low. You, You will remain a product of the corporate model for ministry that exists in most churches in America today. But what is worse yet is you will raise a future army that will do the same. And so, don't let the concept of humble servant leadership be theoretical. But for the sake of the next generation, serve lower and lower and lower. Which brings me to the final point. It is by far the most important of all the points, and that is look to Jesus, the servant king. How does Jesus close this argument for the 12 disciples and Mrs. Zebedee? these self-seeking, overly ambitious disciples? What is his punchline? What is his altar call? Matthew 20, 28, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The gospel is of first importance. Uh, Again, we are filled with helium. We left to ourselves will get tired of sharing with other churches. And we, you might, you might become ambitious for a little bit uh, uh, about hanging out with boring people, doing boring chatting, and, and you, you might get tired of doing Bible studies for kids and old folks, and maybe you'll, you'll soon forget about the next generation. The only thing that is going to keep you at the bottom is that which got you to the bottom, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to apply these points, points one through five. It's good advice. It's just good advice. But I want to tell you that all of the points that I've given you so far possess no power to keep you in that. It is the power of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of the gospel that enables us to joyfully strive to be like Jesus. Matthew 20, 28 isn't just a verse which addresses the subject of limited atonement, although it does. But it is speaking about the Son of Man and the word even, even the Son of Man. He is God. He is creator. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells. And if anybody would have had the right to claim to be served, it would be him. That's why the word even is there. Even the Son of Man, who is worthy of worship, didn't set out to be served. And so may God grant us deep remorse and radical public repentance when we assume a posture that the church is there to serve us. Look at the Son of Man who came to serve. And if Jesus, who on the night in which he was betrayed, got on the floor and washed his disciples' feet in his darkest hour, Guys, 
can you not stand on the front lawn of the church for an extra 10 minutes or in the foyer to care for the soul of one who is hurting and maybe rambling, maybe doesn't have coherent thoughts, someone who has bad breath, someone who is despised by this world, someone who is incapable of anything beyond boring chatting. Can you not give a few minutes after the service to stand and to talk to someone that needs you to minister to them? Are you able, when there is a meal, to be the one who is folding up the chairs and folding up the tables? Can you take steps to communicate that your preferences don't need to be obeyed? Can you work to be the least important person in the room? Why? Because he gave his life a ransom for many. He bore in his body our sins upon the tree. Substitutionary atonement. Penal substitution. What you have is God who has come through the womb of the virgin to the obscurity of Bethlehem and grows up as a nobody. We look at him. We see him. There's, there's no form or comeliness. And we see him. There's anything in him that we should desire him. Not only does he get down on the floor and wash their feet, he gets up on a cross and is hammered by the wrath of God. Even the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Do you see the incongruity of a humble servant sacrificing Savior being proclaimed by a thin-skinned, arrogant self-promoting, ambitious, quick-tempered, irritable pastor. It just doesn't match. Dear pastors, it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. And so may we learn to pour contempt upon all of our pride and discover the joyful paradox of gospel-motivated gospel-empowered, humble leadership. You can't be kingdom-minded unless you are minded like the king. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give his life, to give his life as a ransom for many. Dear Father in heaven, we love you. Please help us Please help us, God. Rescue us, God, please, from ourselves. Help us, Lord, to permanently shed all of our misconceptions about how greatness is defined in the kingdom of your dear Son. And by your Spirit, Lord, please enable us to embrace the value system and imitate the humility of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.